Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Mix McLean. Mix is a trans, non-binary, queer South African. They use the pronouns they, them. Mix is an academic who specializes in LGBTIAQ identities and communities and their use of digital, digital technology to form publics and counterpublics to resist the status quo. Mix is a research, research associate affiliated with the School of Journalism and Media Studies at Rhodes University and is also currently the engagement editor of Makanda's Brokop Mail. Their piece in Living While Feminist is called The A-Gender Borderlands, and in that piece they say, I view being non-binary and specifically agender as a gift. I walk this strange space of existence. It is often lonely, but it can also be bright and glorious over here. So today I'm going to be talking with Mix about gender politics, finding home, and writing resistance. Welcome, Nick. Let's start from a, pl- a place of joy. Tell me about what you're reflecting on in that section that I read. What about being agender and about being able to define your identity brings you joy? What I've, I'm finding, because I've, I've recently moved to back to my hometown uh, of Makanda, and there's uh, there are very few <laughs> queer people here, um, and even fewer trans and, and non-binary folks. So I haven't really had that kind of interaction, um, also COVID, so I haven't really had this kind of interaction where you know you can kind of speak about um, your lived experience. It's it's just a I'm just a person in this town living my life, um, often being misgendered, and and getting upset about it. Um, you know I don't really get upset in an outward way, so other people see it. But it's, it's kind of you know someone misgenders me and I I get caught up in how I feel. And I get caught up in kind of trying to figure out, you know, it, what is it about me that has this person seeing me in a particular way? Um, you know, and, and I've actually forgotten to look for the joy um, of, of being agender, of being a person um, who kind of is gender diverse. Um, and, you know, this is actually a really helpful and beautiful moment for me. So thank you. <laughs> it's, I think, you know, what I remember and I'm kind of, feeling and sensing again for myself is that the joy is this is there in in being able to define myself um being able to challenge um how people think I should present um who people think I should be um and there I feel like there's I get to have a really active participation in my identity formation um and I think that's critical and I think you know it's not just something for trans or queer people to do. I think being intentional about your identity is important. Um, you know, I saw a great thing a few weeks ago um, where someone said, you know, questioning your identity, your gender identity shouldn't just be for trans people. Cis people should do it too, so that you know that you have intentionally chosen your gender. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where I'm thinking um, at the moment around gender identity and, and trying to grasp onto joy again out of interest so people are misgendering you uh, in your daily interactions in makanda which we both know is a very small town (laughs) 
do you find that it happened more in in Makanda than in, for example, you know, a city like Cape Town where people are perhaps a little bit more aware? I think it, you know it happens equally. I think just in in Cape Town, I I kind of got absorbed into the city, um, and you know I had my community and my queer community. So and you know my friends respect my identity, and you know even if those who knew me um, before they them pronouns. Um, whereas in Makanda, you know I'm known. I was I was born here, so I've returned. <laughs> after 10 years and and you know people are calling me other names as well you know they're using names that the child didn't name and I kind of go who, what who are you talking to um but often it's it's not with malice um you know I have a great gym that I go to I've somehow got absorbed into a cult called CrossFit um and they've been really great at, at being inclusive um before I even joined up I contacted them asked them how they felt about trans non-binary and queer people and they were upfront. They're like, you know, we're inclusive. Everyone is welcome. If someone gives you grief, we will deal with them. Um, and all the coaches were, you know, had a chat. Um, they were told what my pronouns are, and and they've gotten right mostly. Um, so when they slip up, I know it's accidental. I know it's a, something else that's happening there around gender attribution. Um, it's not to to harm me, but it can still be harmful um or hurtful rather uh whereas like then there are some people who are trying their best to know me um from high school for instance um and we've gotten to a really great place at the moment where for instance a friend of mine who is wonderful um but constantly uses the wrong pronouns for me and every time she does that i just yell out they you know i'm just like yelling they quite a lot um and she's gone to a point where she's no longer apologizing. She just corrects. And and I really appreciate that because sometimes the apology can be so tedious and then I've got to make someone feel better and, you know, it goes on and on. Um, I don't think that being misgendered is malicious. It's just that folks aren't used to folks like me. I think the work that you're doing there and the various modes that you're doing it are going to help people to I don't like the word used to. I feel like that makes it sound like you are someone that the way, that people have to learn to tolerate. But like the people are going to do better at being more inclusive in the way that they talk. And so yeah, and I also think it would be beneficial for your students and the people that you interact with to be a little bit more aware, you know, out of their bubble, um, which is really going to have a huge positive impact in the town. Um, but to go back to your piece, so you start your piece in um, Living While Feminist to say, saying that being non-binary is to exist in what An- Anzaldur calls the borderlands. What are these borderlands and why were they useful for you in writing your piece and in thinking about the way that you live in the world? So the borderlands are, are the space between um, or the, the space of overlap um, where in Anzaldur's um example it's two cultures meeting um and you know in my experience it's it's me as a trans queer person facing cishet culture you know those are there are borderlands there um and to be understood you know instead of being subsumed into the cishet culture I'm, i'm trying to exist um in my own like queer way um which really, you know, <laughs> I'm coming back to the small town life. It's really difficult. 
um, because I kind of feel like the only queer in the village, it seems again. Um, but yeah, it's for me, the importance there is, is this possibility of the, what the Borderlands presents is the possibility of um, new knowledge, new experiences, new ways of being. Um, but it's not easy work. It's, it's difficult. You, you've kind of got to let go of everything you know um, in order to to become more yourself, the person that, that, you know, that you sense yourself to be. You touch on that in your piece where you talk about safety and danger for yourself and for other queer people. And you present, and I'll do a suggestion, that it's better sometimes to just write off those that would hold you back as a lost cause and move on, which strikes me as both very necessary and also extremely difficult. How do you take care of yourself in this process? You know, I've actually got a really recent example um, of this. I had, so a family member passed away recently um, and I attended the memorial and, you know, COVID regulations and all of that. Um, But I was the only person standing outside the church um, on the other side of a door that was open for ventilation purposes. Um, And when the pastor began to speak, they spoke from a space of homophobia. It was outright. I think it was 1.6 Corinthians. And I, I just had this moment where I was like, how, how does this relate to the family member who's just passed away? Because, I mean, I, we were cool. <laughs> you know, they were very pro-me. Um, and that was was really difficult um, to, to be there and to be faced with, with the reality of the world we live in. Um, you know, not everyone is you know holds these views um and i've had to you know challenge i try to challenge some family members and say you know this is is not appropriate um it's not a kind gesture towards this person's memory um and then another family member went on a bit of a homophobic rampage and um, was saying some horrible things to some some other people and i've had to cut them up like push them away from my life. Um, And, you know, I understand that grief is currently present in my family, um, but I just don't think grief should be the vessel for harm or for hate. Let's call it what it is. Um, So I found it really difficult, actually, this kind of moment. And I'm using it as the example of me trying to figure stuff out, but also, you know, having to push away from something that harms me. and, and the way of taking care of myself is to speak with my community, um, speak with my therapist, like, thank goodness for her. Um, you know, I've kind of just had to really grapple um, with how queer people are seen in the world. Um, so it does, it does sometimes really hurt me, um, even though, you know, I've been out for years and I've had to deal with this, you know, on and off. Um, it is harmful. And, and so the best way that I can kind of come back to myself in, in, in a space of care is to reach out to the community I do have established, um, even if they're not in the same town as I am. I think that's so important in terms of having your support network, your support structure, who can remind you that it's that normal is bullshit <laughs> and that the people who are trying to hold to some fixed, weird, homophobic notion of normal are the ones at fault and um, and deserve to be critiqued 
and you speak about this in your piece actually because troubling what's considered normal is an important feminist project for all feminists but for you it's also about finding a way home to yourself and in the piece you say you, you never felt yourself to be a gender but you felt the push and pull factors to be the gender you were assigned at birth but also also the gender you weren't and I can imagine in situations like the one you've just described you feel a push factor to, to push back against someone trying to define you are there other push and pull factors that you were thinking about in the piece and um, what do you think about you know others who might be feeling the pressure to stay boxed into an identity that doesn't quite fit them in my identity, I'm often just really grappling with, um, not grappling, because I enjoy <laughs> queerness and being agender or trans. Um, I do feel a lot of push and pull within myself um, as a white South African, um, especially coming back to a town that, that has um, really, uh, really needs to do the work um, around racism. Um, and so I, I hear things that I disagree with and I'm having to push against that and, and you know, speak out. Um, but also there is something really painful because it's, it's a, it is a, it's a home space, you know, for me. Um, and I'm finding myself confronted by my community and that my community, you know, is one not approving of my identity as a you know in terms of gender and sexuality but then it's also it's also so toxic towards other identities um which makes sense i understand that at an academic level you know i, I understand how power works how privilege works which groups are, are privileged um and and enact violence upon other groups but there is something at like my level of spirit that is um struggling with it if if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And also I think what's interesting that you've touched on there is like we don't only just belong to one community. So you've spoken already about the community that you reach out to when you're feeling uncomfortable and then the community that you are almost born into by, you know, absolutely no <laughs> choice of your own. And then the various communities that you're able to find within different places. I think that's an important point to touch on in a week where we're speaking and historic policy dialogues are happening in South Africa long overdue around the right to self-determine one's gender identity. But I think that extends to more to being respected for saying who you are. Can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on these policy dialogues and why they are important? It's long overdue, this conversation. Um if I think, you know, just around gender identity, um, you know, and the possibility of a gender neutral ID and mark that gender neutral marker, um, like, just I just think about how many people can kind of breathe a bit easier. Obviously, it also you know opens you up to different violence where people question your ID and all of that um, stuff that can come with it, but. I think it is so, so important that we begin to understand that there are that there's a diversity of gender um, identity that exists. You know, we don't have just these simple binary gender identities. Um, and even for those who are binary genders, they can opt out of the gender marker. And I think that is, that is a very big moment. Um, you know, I didn't realise, for instance, 
that I actually wanted a gender neutral ID. Um, I've kind of just always referred to my ID as, you know, my government, you know, it's got my government name and my government gender. Um, I haven't really owned it as, as mine. It's, you know, it's just something that was assigned to me because, you know, the system just couldn't allow for more. Um, and I think it's it's a significant moment. But I think we need to also be careful, as we've seen with the Constitution, is that you can have this progressive document, you can have progressive policies, um, but, you know, it comes down to implementation. It comes down to the people implementing, um, whether they... Um, you know, allow their personal prejudices um, to get in the way. Um, you know, an example like having your ID changed to for binary trans people um, can take months because somebody doesn't want to process the document because they don't agree. You know, and, and that's that's just messy um, and and harmful. And I think you know, so the great it's not just a let's change the policies. It's got to change the way we we treat people. Um, you know, be that sensitive detraining. Um, yeah, so so I think a lot more has to has to go into it. Um, I'm also worried about it in, in a way as well. You know, this is, this is a really positive thing that could happen, but at the same time, we have incredibly high rates of of hate crimes against LGBTIQ plus people, and I'm wondering like how will those two play out together. Um, you know, what are the implications there? So so there is, it's, it's open more questions, um, as well as a little bit of excitement, you know, to get an ID that reflects my gender identity. For people listening who aren't aware of what our laws in South Africa say, we have um, a law called the Alteration, Alteration of Sex Description and Sex Status Act that allows people to correct their gender identity on the National Population Register and on documents like their ID. But as Nix is saying, it's often comes down to who at home affairs is there to help you on the day, whether they have their own personal dodgy beliefs about what should and should and shouldn't be allowed. Um, and for, you know, I mean, we all know that home affairs is a problem in general. It is going to require a huge amount of training and sensitization amongst home affairs staff and amongst the broader public, as you say, in a context where hate crimes are common, discrimination is common. One of the other ways that you um, touch on this in your piece is your decision to have surgery, which some would call top surgery and what you call a gender competence surgery, which, as I understand, is also very difficult to access, as is other gender-affirming surgery in South Africa. Um, given how difficult it is, why was it important an important step for you? And why do you think that the state makes it so difficult for people to make decisions about their own bodies? Yeah, my surgery was... You know, I think I often speak of it as the greatest gift I could have given myself, also the most expensive gift I could have given myself. Um, but you know, it's we're coming up to I think my three-year anniversary since the surgery, um, and I can almost not remember life before surgery. Um, I feel so much more comfortable in my body. Um, I just I feel like an ease of movement, like. And that's why I call it a comforting surgery. Um, you know, I'm I'm not going anywhere in terms of, bin, you know, binary gender identity. Um, so for me, it's just around more comfort in my body. I I think it's. I don't really know why people make it so difficult um, for folks to access the healthcare they need. Um, you know, I can try and give 
you know, try and give a, a political and economic answer to that. But I think it's, you know, it's just, it's so unnecessary. Um, and, and I think it's caught up in our really problematic um, ideas of gender identity um, in terms of the gender binary, um, the cis-het gender binary in particular. Um, you know, for instance, I have been trying to challenge my medical ed uh, discovery for nearly three years now um, to have my surgery covered. And every time it's, it's been bounced back, I've, I've had, had a really great team of lawyers working on it. Um, and, you know, and, but they're reliant on funding uh, and they've shifted the focus and the, the team that was given um, my case and, and several other people's cases you know, just haven't come back um, on it. So this is a, it's like a, you kind of almost give up um, because I just, you know, I know it's it's an important case to fight um, and it could, you know, set a precedent. Um, but at the same time, I'm exhausted. I'm really tired of, you know, having to be misgendered by medical aids, um, kind of be, you know, told that it was cosmetic um, you know, and they don't recognize this. And using, I mean, goodness, my experience with the medical aid was awful. You know, they they used the wrong title for me. And they used a very gendered title for me. Um, you know, they, they use the word transsexual still, um, which we no longer use. Um, it's not really a very affirming, it's a very pathologized uh, term. You know, and, and so it's, it just gets really it's all very painful. So you've kind of got to also be quite up to the battle of just going through um, that whole process, um, whether you choose to try and, and fight a medical aid on the other side. No, I think that that's the, that's, this is exactly what people don't understand is you have the law, it sounds easy enough to go and get stuff done, but it actually requires a huge amount of mental, physical, emotional labor to do a thing that is supposed to be allowed in terms of the law and so I think it is good for you to touch on these various things that you've had to deal with so that people understand why you know a, a thing like allowing people to have a gender and neutral ID can make a huge difference because then you could apply for your medical aid coverage with the correct gender marker <laughs> like you know it sounds basic, but for people who are for people who are cisgender, we get to access that type of service all of the time, and for it should be the case that everybody gets that access. It shouldn't be so difficult to treat people like the people that they are. Oh, it makes me angry on your behalf, um, and I hope that you know when you're feeling more energized that you are able to persist and that it does come to a fruitful outcome, because we know that in South Africa, legal precedent helps <laughs> a lot. Let's talk about your work. In your bio in the book says you're a caffeine-fueled academic. And since we, since that piece, you are now become a nomadic academic as well, an academic nomad. Tell me about your work as an academic, what it's like, been like to teach during COVID, and why the move to Makanda? Um, I'm still caffeine-fueled. I'm actually more caffeine-based life form now than, than anything else. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... I chose to, to leave Cape Town. I, I still have moments where Cape Town still feels like home, as Makanda feels like home. I just think, you know, I must just make peace with the fact that I live in two places. Um, but I got to a point after the first year of lockdown, I can't believe that we actually have to say things like there was year one and then year two. Um, 
And after year one, I didn't want to be in that kind of level of isolation again. I wanted to go home. Um, but it was weird because I, I didn't think that that, that Mkanda was a place I wanted to return to. Um, you know, I didn't have a great experience here growing up as a queer kid. Um, and But then something in me just kept calling me to go home. I just, I felt, you know, in my, like in my chest, something pulling at me to return home and so I did and you know I stayed for a few weeks and kind of just got a sense of what Wakanda was like again um, and then realized that we were going to be teaching remotely for the rest of 2021 uh, so I requested that I would you know if I could teach from Wakanda um, and then being here I just I started to you know I, I a chronic health issue in terms of um, I have severe asthma and being here uh, my health improved like dramatically um, and so I just I made the call to to work from here um, and then in being here I've had a lot of time to think around like what I want for my life going forward and, and perhaps the pandemic will do that to you um, this point of crisis and I realized that I wasn't giving um the energy I want to give to the research I want to do, which is um, on queer identities. I want to work with queer communities in a way that is engaged and, and sees um, the community, the communities uh, benefiting from my research. Um, and I was kind of doing that on the side because I, I was working in a department that, while it was technology focused, it really wasn't a fan of the social sciences, um, let alone queer theory. Um, so I, I made it quite a, you know, at the time it felt a bit foolish, um, given that we're in a pandemic, but I just decided, you know, I'm going to give up a permanent gig and I'm going to try and make this happen for myself. Um, so yeah, that's what kind of drove my decision. And it's been a week <laughs> of being officially, uh, no longer a permanent academic human, um, and I think uh, I think I'm already right. I, I mean, it's a bit soon to say. Um, but what I have enjoyed about it is over the last few months, as I've kind of made it known that I will be kind of freelancing this kind of roaming academic vibe. Um, I've had requests for um, short courses. I've had people come through and say, you know, really enjoyed your research paper. Uh, would you mind teaching? You know, taking a class on this um, for my students. Um, I've been asked to to develop develop electives on like digital media and gender. Um, next year, I'm going to teach an honors course on querying the internet. So I'm starting to feel like this really like I've made the right call. Um, you know, it's a bit of a risk, but I feel that this move has really um, resonates with what I want for myself and and my journey forward. It's important to trust when the universe sends you a message back that things are going to be okay. I know that's completely woo-woo, but if it wasn't, you wouldn't get these requests. You wouldn't get the, you know, the people saying you're doing the right thing. Um, and also, if it doesn't work out in the end, that's also fine. I think we tend to be very hard on ourselves that every decision we make has to be the right one. And maybe it's just a decision that will help you learn something in the end. Yeah, you know, something interesting happened in that, that first visit um, home. I was going to the SVCA charity shop, mostly because there was a donkey outside, and I was like, I've missed Makanda, which, you know, 
anybody who knows Makanda, there are donkeys everywhere and, and they're friendly. They're basically like weird puppies. Um, and I bumped into um, someone who used to be a lecturer of mine and is, is now going to be a colleague of mine um, every now and then <laughs> when I teach at Rhodes. Um, and she said something interesting to me um, because I was like really, at that point, I was still kind of trying to suss out Makanda whether it was queer friendly or not, how people would treat me. I just, I'd had an awful experience growing up here. Um, and she said something like, no, the, the town is shifting in terms of how it's treating, um, especially young LGBTIQ plus humans. Um, and she's speaking to me about some of the schools and the projects they have and the support structures they're putting in place. Um, uh, and then she said something to me, which, you know, it also had me have a moment where I was like, oh my God, I'm getting old. Um, which she's like, you know, you could be a really good role model to, to these young LGBTIQ plus humans. And I had a moment of like, what? Um, and I was actually in conversation then at some point a little bit later with my, my old high school, um, which was about to welcome its first trans girl. Um, I went to an old girls high school. Um, and I kind of just said, you know, if you if you need help, I, I would be happy to have conversations with you around gender identity um, or anything really around uh, intersectionality and inclusivity of identities. Um, and I've developed a really good relationship with the school, which again was a terrible experience when I was growing up. And now I'm, I'm kind of seeing, I don't know how to say this other than like, those terrible experiences weren't for nothing. Like they can be used now to, to help create safer spaces. Um, and I really enjoyed that about this year. A last question before we get to the final few. You're now working at Grocots, which is a newspaper, and was also the topic of your master's thesis. What does it mean to be an engagement editor and how is that work going so far? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it when they asked me um, to help them with the newspaper. Um, just kind of had a, I thought that, you know, that time was done when I had finished the master's. Um, so, yeah, um, essentially Grocott's Mail uh, used to be a print publication and um, it was bought over by Rhodes University a few years ago and they've been trying on and off to turn it into a teaching newspaper, so a way to get students really engaged with the community, um, but also to, to learn about journalism um, through practice. And so there is an editor, editor, like the, the main editor, human. Um, and then there is me. I'm more of a digital strategist, but um, what I do a lot of time, like do a lot of is building community online. So, you know, a story, I would be kind of posting one of the articles on, say, Facebook, for instance, and then engaging with um, the community as they ask questions um, or picking up from different local um, online community groups, um, potential news stories or points of crisis that we can try and help with. So so what Grocots Mill is becoming is not just this um, kind of media space that reports on the town, but starts to work with the town and with the community and really starts to become a community newspaper in a very different sense of how we've traditionally understood community newspapers. Um, so yeah, I spent a lot of my time just thinking about like, how people, you know, speak with each other, how we can have different, like, viewpoints come into conversation. Um, yeah, and just, just really holding space for those conversations. 
sounds very exciting. So our last three questions of the podcast are the same for every guest. Um, what The first one is, what is a book that has inspired your feminism? Bell Hooks has always stood out for me. I've really enjoyed her stuff. Um, just because of because it's also an academic feminism. Um, and I really didn't think I was going to talk about Bell Hooks now, but here I am speaking about Bell Hooks. Um, for me, it's around, like, kind of, oh, trying to decide on one. I think it's teaching to transgress. Um, it's, you know, these essays of her experience um, teaching and, and working with, with young people and just the kind of conversations that come out of that space. Um, but also the other thing about Bell Hooks is, is her writing style. It's not this kind of heavy academic um, way of writing. And, and for me, as a first-gen, um, you know, academic, it's, it's also, it gave me permission to write the way I speak, um, to not kind of overperform academia, but also to make my work accessible. And, and that's really quite woven in with, with my feminism. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think Bell Hooks. You know, like there, there are other humans um, which I would love to speak about, but I'm not going to... Um, because this could go on forever. <laughs> it's often uh, when you ask people about the books, that's the one they want to talk about the most. <laughs> the second to last question is, do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? I think right now, right now, right now, the one that really stands out to me is um, from Cisneros, which is solitude is sacred. Um, and it's, you know, COVID has done this to me. <laughs> Um, but you know, trying to to settle into to solitude and and finding comfort uh, with myself, um, being in conversation with myself, being in relation with myself, you know, um, and I found that it's actually been really a, a incredibly healing experience. Um, I, I've noticed I'm less inclined to accept like humans who come with a lot of red flags as potential relationship humans. Um, having spent the time and done the work. Um, so, yeah, I think right now, the, the kind of the quote for me is that, you know, solitude is sacred. Very nice. And then finally, what is your advice for other feminists on their journeys? Kindness comes to mind first. Um, because we're going to, at any point in our journeys, we, we encounter other people with other lived experiences. And, and it's very quick to kind of, we're often quick to um, react um, or defend our positions. Um, and I think sometimes we lose the potential for conversation there. Um, that's not to say tolerate absolute nonsense, like call it for what it is for sure. Um, but I think kindness is key to having um, productive conversations. And then I think finding community communities, identifying who your people are, so that you have a space to, to turn to when things get rough. Um, you know, Nancy Fraser speaks about counterpublics um, as spaces for rest and, and recovery and renewal in order to keep fighting, um, or to keep organising and to keep pushing forward. And I think that's very key. Um, so kindness and, and community. Beautiful. Well, Mix, I hope that you experience some kindness going forward in the tiny little town and that the community grows to become just better human beings as a result of your presence and your work. 
thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today and for sharing your insights. Cool. Thanks so much, Jen. It's been great having a conversation with you. so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves